Welcome to The Beat Society, where I indulge in conversation with folk from all walks of life in the artistic world to find out what puts the beat in their society. Over the course of the series, I'll be chatting to a range of people in different creative industries who will be sharing their personal stories and work. So sit back, get comfy and enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Beat Society with me, Kim. Today, I'll be talking all about the wonderful world of children's television. I'll also be joined by not just one guest, but two, who started working together on popular children's TV programme Pipkins in the early 70s, and they've now reunited to make their brand new programme Monty & Co for CBeebies. Yes, it's a very wonderful and talented Gail Renard and Nigel Plaskett. So please do join me a little bit later on for my chat with them. I have always loved children's TV, right from as far back as I can remember from the early 90s. I remember watching CBBC in the broom cupboard with Andy Peters and Ed the Duck. Obviously back then we didn't have a lot of channels to just endlessly flick through. And even if we did, we'd literally be sat on top of the TV turning the knob to change it. No CBBCs or CITV channels, just two hours on a weekday from half past three after school for a few great programmes before Neighbours then appeared on our screen, just in time for my mum to watch as she arrived back home from work. But what I loved about children's TV were the stories, the characters, the little worlds that were created for us. When you're little, everything is simple, your world is small, but at the same time, it's full of adventure and imagination. Whether it was riding on the bus to the theme tune of Play Days and desperately wanting the bus to stop at the roundabout stop, to then singing along to the Wizardora theme tune and watching her get terribly confused with her spells, to then watching a group of peas called Poddington, and finally going on an adventure with Brum the car and getting annoyed at the end because the man in the garage never once spotted him leave. Okay, I admit, I wasn't annoyed about that when I was five, but growing up, I always questioned that. Yes, life as a child was brilliantly simple. Not only did I love all the different animation, but I really did embrace puppet shows too, such as Sooty and Sweep, Tots TV, and of course, Rosie and Jim, with their very memorable theme tune. And as a 30-odd-year-old, I still remember the words to them all. The theme tune to these shows were earworms, and they always stuck in my mind. But as I grew away from my preschool age, I started getting into more drama, comedy and factual-based children's programmes, such as Maid Marian and Her Merry Men, which, by the way, I think should definitely make a comeback. Art Attack and Tony Hart's art programme, along with Biker Grove, and, of course, the revamped series of Grange Hill. Biker Grove, though, I didn't get into until way past Anton Deck's time on the show. It was a little bit before my time but I loved the opening title sequence and that funny little laugh at the end which I'd always try and imitate. Art programmes are great, but who really had a cupboard full of sticky black plastic? Not me. Blue Peter was another one I didn't mind too much as I grew a little older. Like most people, I remember watching Anthea Turner create Tracy Island and I literally thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen, but there was no way I could recreate it. I remember suddenly Saturday morning TV became a big thing and took off and watched the first ever Live and Kicking with Andy Peter and Emma Forbes. This was super cool as they had guests that you could ring in and speak with. Does anyone else still remember the telephone number to ring in? I do. Completely pointless, but it's one of the most useless things to remember. Then SMTV was born and suddenly I was introduced to programmes such as Clarissa Knows It All and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I have now two young children, both of whom love children's television and lucky enough to have a whole channel dedicated to it with such a vast range of shows and many educational too, I'm pleased to say. My particular favourite is Horrible Histories, the use of comedy and songs to learn about history from the Tudors to the Romans and more. Children's TV has gone a long way with many new generations of kids continuing to watch and enjoy The only difference is, when I was little, it was limited, but of great quality. And now there's so much of it, there's always something new to discover. Joining me now are two incredibly talented people who have started working together on a popular children's TV programme in the early 70s called Pipkins, with the infamous Hartley Hare. 
Since then, they've remained friends and have joined up once again to produce the most wonderful and fun new programme for the BBC for a new generation of preschool children called Monty and Co. Another puppet-based series filled with songs, laughter and friendships. Individually, they've worked on numerous amount of well-loved shows, some of which I grew up on. Nigel is a master of voices behind some of these iconic puppets and is known for things such as Spitting Image, Muppets Christmas Carol, Harry Potter, the new Captain Scarlet, the spooks of Bottle Bay in films such as Little Shop of Horrors and Lambreth, and has puppet coached for Sesame Street and Avenue Q. And let's not forget the little monkey in the PG Tips advert. I quite fancy a cuppa now. Gail Renard, my other guest this evening, is award-winning BAFTA writer, performer and producer and has worked in films, comedy, children's television, books as well as the stage. She's a member of BAFTA and is the chair of the Writers Guild of Great Britain. Her incredible career so far includes the series of The Famous Five based on the Enid Blyton books. She also did Chuckle Vision, which I absolutely loved as a kid growing up. To me, to you. <laughs> as well as that, at the age of 16, Gail snuck into a hotel in Montreal, Canada, where her rock idol was staying at the time, and to get a report for her school newsletter. That idol just happened to be one of the famous four, John Lennon. It was here where she and John became good friends and was inspired to become a writer, and since then written and shared her story called John Lennon, Give Me a Chance. Please welcome my guests today, Gail Renard and Nigel Plaskett. Hi, Gail and Nigel. Thank you so much for coming on to the Beat Society. Um, it's the first time I've had two guests on at one time, so I'm really excited to have you both on. How are you? Well, thank you, Kim. Thank you very much. Good. Like, How are you, Gail? I'm fine. It's like the Jedward of children's shows here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> um, I don't really know where to start, so I'm just going to sort of dive in here because you've both done, you know, you know, separately and together so much work over the several um, the past uh, few decades. Um, now, you both started together working in a children's television show called Pipkins in 1973. Is that correct? Yeah, that's 1973? right. Yes. Yeah, 1973. And... Excellent. Now, I wasn't around. I was born in 85, so I can't say I watched it but I have heard of it and I love the character Hartley Hare um, which is brilliant I watched her one last night with my daughter actually she's just turned six the glove puppet episode we watched oh yeah um, I love the opening with with Hartley saying now I'm going to talk to you about being naughty I thought that's brilliant <laughs> um, and she really enjoyed that how did the idea for that character come about well it was it was a uh, 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 drafted by Michael Jeans and Susan Pleat, who were the producer and writer on the series. They gave me a um, they gave me a breakdown, really, of what the character was, um, but it didn't give you any really clue to the voice. So that kind I don't know where that came from, frankly, but uh, um, uh, it just I looked at the breakdown. Eventually, I looked at the puppet and saw what that looked like um, and that gave me an idea but really the kind of the character really developed because of the two characters I was playing I was playing the tortoise and the hare mm -hmm. and I wanted to make them as different as possible so the tortoise had a really really low slow slightly cockney voice and Harley had a very high manic voice and the idea was that you, you wouldn't be able to tell it was the same person doing it and that's kind of where I developed the idea from originally. Mm, no, they're brilliant. Not, not just being modest, if I may say so, because if you look at children's television around that, and there were some great shows, Hartley stood out because you didn't have a character who was such, dare I say, a diva, you know, a, a, an over-the-top diva who went for it. And, uh, and that's great because children do that themselves. You know, they're either very, very happy or they can throw a tantrum, or they're very, very sad. And Hartley could do that. Uh, and also Nigel's comedy timing is second to none. So it was, it, it was... Uh, well, I, think, I think there was, uh, there was a development of the character over the 10 years that we were doing it, or nine years that we were doing it. So I look at some of the, there's not much of the early stuff existing, but if I look at that and I look at the character later on, it really did develop. Um, 
and um, changed in some ways, you know. But what I think about Hartley is, is that there is a little bit of everybody in Hartley. At some point in his uh, extremes, you could see yourself somewhere or something that you had done uh, and regretted and then eventually so, uh, sorted it out, you know. Yeah, no, also from a writing point of view, we just had more and more fun with it because when you've got a cast that you know can look at the script and go, ah, we can play, we can have fun with this and we know what to do with it, then you get a relationship going. Uh, and also we made it our own, you know, the, the whole mm. Pipkins cast. I think that's what happens is of course, is that, is that we play with the, the characters uh, the writers see what we're doing with it. Uh, they come into the studio sometimes and watch what happens during the bits between the takes, uh, and they pick up on things, and they pick up on things that we can, that we are playing with, in other words, uh, and maybe use it in the program. So it's a kind of a, a whole developmental process that goes on, and and it's kind of unique. And I didn't realize it at the time because it was one of my first jobs. But uh, to have a nine-year period where you you can take a character and and play with it is pretty unique, and uh, it was quite. Uh, we were very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. that's no, brilliant. That's why there's nothing worse than writers who aren't allowed to go into studio because that's where you do see you, you know as, as Nigel said, it's sometimes between the takes and it's over lunch that you look at the cast or certain actors and you go wow, there's a lot of material there. Mm. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, so uh, in a very nice way. I mean, one wouldn't say, you know, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's it's growth and it's doing something together. Mm. Can you improvise as well when you're doing this sort of, you know, these, these puppet uh, shows well, and things like that? It's not my favourite uh, genre. <laughs> I mean, Gail would, would be uh, furious and ha hate it because... <laughs> If you're improvising, you have no script, she has no job. So, <laughs> um, yeah, of course, you, I, I do improvise and I have had to at times, but mm. I'm, I'm usually happier with a script. Yeah, yeah it's to follow. I can only quote John Thor when he was asked about it on Morse. And he said, why would I, in a moment, change a script a writer has been working on for six months? Mm. And... Uh, you know, it's, uh, but yeah, I mean, occasionally, you know, Nigel or an actor will throw in a very funny, you know, aside or whatever that stays in. Mm. But uh, yeah, I'm one of these, it's, uh, you, you try to make the script as playable as possible. I have had to improvise in terms of being interviewed. Um, and when you get a character interviewed, for example, I did a, I played a character called Monkey for uh, uh, which was uh, in the PG Tips advertising PG Tips commercials. And at that point, um, we did some improvisation because actually Ben Miller, the comedian, was doing the voice for Monkey. They, uh, this was a kind of historic thing that, when I took it over. Mm. But uh, he was good at improvising. He was very good at improvising. So if, if we did a, an interview, uh, he would improvise and I'd have to follow him with the lip sync, which ah. was tricky at first. But um, um, eventually I got to know his speech patterns so well that I was able to do it and follow him and, uh, and predict what he was going to say and how he was going to say it. That's going to be hard, though. You're, you're trying yeah. to sort of get that motion, you know, yeah. at the same time with, with him talking. That yeah, I developed tricks. Of... I developed yeah. little tricks that would actually give me a little bit of a, uh, a head start. So, yes, it, it, it was difficult, but eventually you do get to know speech patterns. And it's quite interesting from that point of view. Yeah, that is fabulous. Um, as a child growing up, Nigel, were you into puppets? Were, did you watch, you know, what was it like? Were you into sort of character building and making puppets? Did you ever think that this would be something that you would develop as a career as you got older? Not really. I, I, I did. Um, I did a lot of performance. We used to play theatres in my, you know, my my cousins and myself. We would do little shows, and we would have uh, curtains hung up across the living room on a washing line, you know, which were bed sheets and things like that. But um, I think really the, um, the 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 main thing about it was that when when it came to puppets, you could and I, and I started to experiment with puppets as a kid, you know, as toys. Mm -hmm. um, I realised I could have complete control over the whole thing. I could do all the characters, I could do all the voices, I could write the scripts, I could do everything. 
and I became this kind of megalomaniac character. And, uh, and uh, really, it, you know, as a child, I think that, that appealed to me quite a lot. I didn't need anybody else. I could do it all myself. Uh, I realized pretty soon once I started doing it professionally, of course, you can't do that. And uh, you do need to have, it's a collaborative experience. And that's the joy of doing something like, uh, like Pipkins and like Monty and Co. You know, it's, um, mm. it's, really, it's really good to work with other people. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll get on to Monty and Co a little bit later on, but I just wanted to um, say, uh, um, ask you, Nigel, because you've worked on lots of different um, familiar TV, theatre films that we're, you know, that we all love and that we know. you know, I was, and some of them, I mean, I, I love Little Shop of Horrors, Lambert, which I love because obviously I'm a massive David Bowie fan. Um, Spitting Image, Avenue Q, The Muppets, Hitchhiker's Guys, uh, Sesame Street, it, it goes on and on. Um, do you have a particular favourite puppet, a p- favourite character that you've created? Well, I think the longer running ones are, are good for uh, the ones I can relate to the best, probably, you know, like Hartley and like uh, Monkey. Uh, and hopefully like Monty and um, there were uh, the spitting image of course ran for 13 years I did that for 13 years and uh, I had uh, John Major who um, I you can just about see there in, yeah, over my shoulder Amazing. <laughs> um, and uh, so those characters where where you get the chance to develop the character uh, I think those are really kind of those are my favorites I can't really pull one out of all those uh, there were many others as well. I did a series called The Spooks of Bottle Bay, which was uh, where I played this character called Sid Sludge. And he was a great character to play. Um, we only did three series of that, but it was that was a joy to do as well. So, uh, yeah, it, there's, yeah, it's very difficult to single one out when you've been doing it as long as I have. Yeah, I know. There's so many as well. And they're all, you know, they're quite iconic and they stand out in their own way, don't they? So they you know, they have all different characteristics, different personalities, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I think also when we think of um, puppets and, and that sort of thing, we automatically think of children's entertainment, children's programming. Um, but you mentioned there that you did Spitting Image. Another one uh, was Avenue Q, which is obviously for, you know, more adult content, more for that sort of um, audience. Yes. What was, what's that like? Are you a bit more able to be free, a bit more risky? Um you know what was what's that like jumping from sort of adult puppeteering to you know doing children's television well it it, it, it is a bit of a jump to go from one to the other um mm-hmm. and yes of course you're freer in the content but of course that's very often not up to me what the content is so mm-hmm. uh but in the performance particularly in spitting image um i think we were given we, we were there given a challenge because the the, uh, the sketches were recorded the voice tracks were recorded by impressionists mm-hmm. in advance of us, us shooting it in the studio mm-hmm. so uh we would then have to think of things we could put on top of you know in other words the actions that would that would perhaps help to the comedy and very often um, in the very early days john lloyd who was the producer at the early days he came to us and said this sketch isn't working and we'd be doing background action he'd say make it funny in the background will you and, uh, and so so we would add add in all this kind of visual humor and I can remember on one occasion we were we were ended up we were in a restaurant. It was a, the setting was a restaurant. We were throwing bread rolls around the place because the, <laughs> the sketch wasn't very funny. And so there was things going. There was so much going on in the background that the two guys who were doing the sketch stopped and said, "What the hell's going on here?" <laughs> uh, so there were times when that was kind of a challenge to get some physical humour into mm. that show. Um, Avenue Q. Well, it's a very very much of a formula. Uh, parody of Sesame Street, definitely mm. not for children, and um, brilliantly thought out and brilliantly performed by all the people. And my job in that case, I didn't perform in it. I was teaching the actors mm. how to use the puppets. Yeah. So that was kind of an interesting thing for me to do. And I did that. I've been doing that. Should I say? Let's hopefully we'll go back to it eventually. I've been doing that for nearly twenty years now. So that's quite an interesting one wow. for me. Yeah, gosh, that's amazing. That's just, yeah, I mean, you've created so many different characters and, 
you know like yeah, I said so many are so familiar yeah it's so much fun as well I can imagine you know when I was little we had obviously like Punch and Judy and things like that I remember my parents buying us the Punch and Judy little you know um, theatre kit and we'd be behind the curtain doing oh that's the way to do it or whatever <laughs> it was so we yeah. grew up on that as well I remember Sesame Street and things like that yeah. um my son is really into um the Furchester Hotel on CBeebies as well he loves all that that side of um, children's television with the puppets. Um, I think that's obviously a very popular thing with young children at the moment. Well, I think I think there's quite a lot of, uh, a lot of it is because they're three-dimensional, mm. whereas as opposed to the animation, there's so much animation, you know, a lot of it very good, but a, a, mm. there is a lot of animation out there. It's great sometimes to get a three-dimensional piece like Furchester, like Monty and Co, like Pipkins mm. was, um, you know, in, in that sea of animation, they, it stands out a bit. And that's kind of what we were hoping for Monty and Co was that it would stand out amongst mm. the, the other, uh, the other programs that, uh, that are on at the moment, because there is so much animation, good stuff. A lot of it is good stuff, but it's, um, it, it's this, we, we felt that Monty would be different for that reason. One of those reasons anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there's not, yeah, like you say, there's so much animation out there, which is great. And there's on CBeebies as well, I find it quite very educational um, yeah. with the animation that they put out there. But yeah, the, the, it's so lovely to have, um, you know, puppet shows as well, like the Furchester Hotels and the Monties yeah. and things like that. It's great. Um, and my kids, they just, they love that sort of stuff. I see, I don't know, they seem to sit there and they actually want to watch it uh, and they get involved as well, which is great. Um, now, obviously I grew up in the nineties. Uh, so I remember um, uh, we didn't have CBBS or a CBB channel or anything like that. We just had the broom cupboard. At, I think it was half past three to half past five and the neighbors would come on. So you'd get those two hours where you could sit there and watch, you know, all these lovely programs. I remember it was Andy Peters when I was little. Um, and uh, yeah, there were so many on there. How do you find, um, how do you, how can I put this? Children's television has evolved since, obviously, since you've been working uh, on it in the 70s, right up until now. How do you feel it's changed? A quantity, really. I think there's yeah. so much of it now. That's the, it's the same for all of us, you know, not just children's TV. Uh, mm. there's, there's a huge quantity and a huge amount of choice. Um, uh, to be honest with you, uh, if I'm absolutely honest, I don't think the audience, certainly not in the preschool market, I don't think the audience has changed that much. Um, uh, people, people like to try and say that they, they're reinventing the wheel all the time. Mm. Uh, but I don't think it's true. I think, you know, uh, when I look at Monty and I look at Pipkins, um, it's very similar in its style. Mm. Maybe it's a little bit faster paced. Um, and that's down to really uh, us and the director really um, looking at it. Um, but that's about all really, I think. The audience has stayed the same. Children are still children, you know, they don't change that much. Maybe adults do, maybe adults have because, you know, there, there is so much more available to you now, like in the technological world. Mm. But um, on the whole, really, um, children are, are very much the same now as when they were in the, in the 70s, certainly the younger ones anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, it's, I think, yeah, I think the format is exactly the same. It's just maybe bringing it into, you know, into a newer yeah. generation of children. Yeah, obviously um, there are things that you have now that you have to include like mobile phones and all of those things. And, and although we don't in, use it that much in, um, in uh, uh, Monty and Co, there are uh, the, the beginnings of, of tech coming into, um, into the program. Mm, yeah, that's it. Th that's it, it's sort of, adapting for a newer audience, a newer age of technology and that sort of stuff. Um, no, it's fascinating. What we, try, what we try to do in Monty & Co is, is to cover the emotional side of things. We cover, mm. um, we want, what we want to do is to, is to show how people live together, how, how there are differences between people. Um, and we try and cover that. So as well as trying to tell the stories and, and everything else we do, we go for that sort of emotional learning side. Mm. Um, uh, that's our kind of fundamental, our core, you know, that's what we want to do is to, is to show this to kids. Am I yeah. right, Gail? 
yeah no totally it's uh it's showy because i mean everyone has feelings uh and children have very strong feelings and it's you know they can see that it's all right to be angry with their friend or with their sibling uh or they can feel very very sad but we also show them ways to get out of that uh within us within a within an 11 minute episode so it's all right to have it uh and you have to acknowledge feelings but then you can move on and you will be all right uh and it's about relationships as well wouldn't you say nigel yes definitely. you know uh on monty and co like pipkins it's a blended family uh mm. and lots of families are blended now they might not have a blue elephant but they're blended <laughs> uh and um yeah i think as nigel was saying children are more technologically advanced now uh because it's around uh and you know studies have shown that from a year old a child can you know sort of uh, use um, iPlayer and YouTube and the rest and at 18 months old they can skip over commercials uh which yeah. which is evolution of some sort mm -hmm. but then again back when we started a child would know how to turn on the television so it's just switched uh and also I mean, how many two-year-olds did we know who were using uh, video players? Very often they were posting a jam sandwich into the slot where the video <laughs> came but they were using it. Yeah. Uh, so it's as ever, when you're writing for small children, it's very important that you have their points of reference because a small child has a smaller world and very specific things in their world, uh, you know, mummy, daddy, or whichever, you know, sort of their family is. And also whether it's a Hoover, whether it's, you know, they're very mm -hmm. specific. I wouldn't mm -hmm. get into aerodynamics with a small child. No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> it's but amazing. Then, yeah, Go on. You, you could do it with a paper, with a paper airplane. Mm. You're describing, you're teaching aerodynamics without using the words. Yeah, yeah, no, it's funny what you said about, you know, you know, child, young child learning how to use an iPad and be able to access like the iPlayer. I mean, my son's only two and he, he gets the he gets my iPad and he just goes straight onto the, you know, the kids apps and he, <laughs> he wants. Yeah, he just and I and sometimes he does it. And I think, how did you get to that bit? Because I'm not actually sure how that works. But I guess because they're growing up in an age where, well, it's a digital age. When I was growing up, yeah, it was VHSs. And, you know, if you wanted to change the channel, you had to walk to the TV, turn it on, that sort of stuff. Whereas now, yeah, like you say, it's just a different it's a different age. But, you know, children are children. They're still the same. The same format works. And it's just great. You know, they love I it. Think they have no fear of technology. That's the thing. It's, it's yeah. like young children have no fear in most things, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. So they're not afraid of the technology. You know, they don't think they're going to break it. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And then I think, oh, no, they just throw my iPad across the floor. <laughs> um, Gail, you've worked on loads of numerous uh, television, uh, children's television programs as well. Uh, the Famous Five, the Eden Bl uh, Blyton thing as well. But um, you also did Chuckle Brothers, which I love because that was of my era. So I used to love that. I used to love the theme tune to that. And I used to watch that uh, constantly after school. That was great. Um, but you also mentioned that you you work in, you worked in comedy as well. But I wanted to go further back to when you were sixteen and you had a meeting with a very well known man. Uh, oh. Could it be John Lennon? <laughs> yes, uh, I mean. So tell I, us a bit about that because I'm really fascinated about that because you've got the book out as well, John Lennon, Give Me a Chance, uh, which is your story, which is a marvelous story. But for those that aren't aware, do share because uh, it's fascinating oh, yeah. and I love it. Uh, I mean, briefly, when I was 16, I was, I grew up in Montreal in Canada, and I was a Beatle maniac since I was little, and I heard John and Yoko were coming to Montreal, and I just wanted to, to go, I, I knew which hotel they were going to stay in, and I wanted to go and get a glimpse of them, and I went downtown, and through a whole Mission Impossible bid, I ended up uh, actually knocking on the door of their hotel room. Uh, this was before the bed-in started, so that was my great luck. 
And uh, Yoko answered and I asked for an interview for my school paper. Uh, and it all began. I met John and Yoko. I hit it off, especially with John. And they asked me to come back for all eight days to help at the bed-in. Uh, my mother gave permission. And um, so it was an incredible, uh, incredible learning curve. It was great. On one hand, I developed a friendship with John Lennon uh, and we did stay in touch. Uh, and also it was, uh, it was a great, what I did that summer, <laughs> you know, it was, and a great interview for the school paper. Um, and I'm very grateful to John uh, because also it was, the bed-in was about peace. It was uh, a big peace demonstration. Uh, and I was a pacifist since the age of 11 having discovered Vera Britain and all that very early. Uh, and uh, it, it now as, as a grown up, I look back and, and go, that was an important time. I mean, I had a great time being with a Beatle and seeing the world press and all the rest, but historically, I hate to say historically placing it now, mm. uh, it was an important time. And we could we could use one of John and Yoko's bed-ins now, um, but uh, you know one one tries to still keep the peace message his peace message alive, uh, and that's what the song "Give Peace a Chance" does. Uh, so uh, yeah, I was I was very lucky, and um, I wrote the book about it, and the book has just been optioned for a film. So who knows what's going to happen? So fingers crossed. That's amazing. Oh, gosh. Congratulations, Gail. That's incredible. What a story, though. I mean, I'm a huge Beatles fan. Um, I am. And I sometimes feel I was born in the wrong era. I feel like I, sh I should be a bit older than I am because I'm slightly a bit of an old soul. But um, <laughs> I... And funnily enough, aside from other things I'm writing, I've got two different books on the go. One is a Beatles book and one is what happened with John Lennon and some other friends afterwards, after the bed-in. So there's another story to be told. So uh, my parents said I would grow out of it. They were wrong. <laughs> You're still doing it now. That's incredible. What a story. Still time, girl. It's still time. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. How did you get, was there not, I mean, was, I mean, I can't imagine security was any, is anything like it is now. How did you get through security to be able to just sort of knock on the door of this hotel room and say, hey, I'm doing a, a report for my school paper. How did you even get past them? Never underestimate a 16 year old. You know, and especially if their rock idol is nearby. Um, but funnily enough, I went back to the hotel. They invited me back a couple of years ago because uh, they'd expunged everything that happened at the bed-in uh, because they were a proper decent hotel and didn't, you know, they didn't want to be known with, uh, you know, associated with dirty hippies at the time. Uh, and now they do want to be associated with it because it's commercial. Um, but, uh, the head of security uh, had a word with me and he said, this would never be able to happen now. You would not get past us. <laughs> and he said, show us how you got in. And I showed him and I showed him one of the back staircases and I pointed around and I said, you still have no security cameras here. I could have done it again. And you saw him panic and make a note to his assistant. We have to put cameras here. And I thought, you know, you hadn't done it. Um, but now but, she's a sec security advisor as well. He's <laughs> and security yeah. advisor. Well, sh I shouldn't have told him because who knows? I might want to go back for another interview with someone sometime. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, that's trying so to make the stairs though now, Gail. Trying to make the stairs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 14, fourteen flights of stairs. It would take me. Give me oh. three days. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's inc what an incredible story. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing these other two books and hopefully if this, you know, you get a film out of it as well, that would just be amazing. The cherry on the cake there. Um, but your mother said you could stay there for eight days. Is that correct? Was well, that I did the provision. They put me in a taxi late night to come home to sleep. And I went back early the next morning, but uh, it's my, my parents trusted me funnily enough. Um, 
And I think there's a lot to be said that we let our own lives more. Children were expected to do things. You were expected to do your homework. Mm. You were expected to do as well as you, you know, there was less of the, the hover parent. I, where I grew up in Canada, it was very little house on the prairie because there were lots, it really was still lots of vast fields and blizzards and, you know, I walked two miles, literally I would walk two miles to school in a blizzard and that was just what you did. And, you know, there were no mobile phones. They expected they'd see you at make mealtime. Mm. The only worry would literally be if you weren't home at mealtime and then they'd go, we seem to be missing someone. Uh, but uh, so, you know, and you would take in the summer, you would take your bicycles and disappear. And in the winter, you would take your sled and disappear. So, you know, you, you had to be trusted, not only intellectually, but that you weren't going to do anything stupid in that weather. Mm. You know, yeah, so there's probably a maturity, uh, you know, that you knew how not to get frostbite, you knew what you could and couldn't do. Uh, so uh, I suppose compared to frostbite, John Lennon was quite safe. <laughs> Oh, what I would love to have been to do to be in that room. That was amazing. And did he inspire you to become the writer that you are today? He helped me. He was the first person I could confide in about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and he helped me. So I'm very, very grateful. Uh, the greatest thing you, the greatest gift you can give anyone, especially a child or teenager, is confidence. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I said, I'm very grateful. Oh, very much so brilliant what a story to tell as well and by John Lennon who I just love um yes. my son's called John Winston as well <laughs> oh, wonderful. well we me and my husband really like the name John just in general we've got loads of idols that we we love and they're all called John basically uh, and you can't go wrong with a John everyone knows a, a John and I really love the Beatles and and I really love the name Winston and it just happened to be John Lennon's name as well so I've got a two-year-old who's a big Monty fan called John Winston so they <laughs> John Lennon would have been thrilled he really oh, <laughs> I hope so <laughs> um so I'll Basically, you, you know, many years down the line, you've now reunited. And I said, we're going to talk about, obviously, come back to Monty. So you're back together. You're working on a new um, program for CBBS called Monty and Co. Um, how did the idea for this come together? And what, what inspiration did you take from that? Because I know you said you linked it very closely to the Hartley hair, uh, hair character from Pipkins. How did, what inspired you to come back together and to create this brand new uh, series for a newer generation of preschool children? Well, I think the, 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 the real inspiration was uh, us getting back together, talking about the possibility of reviving Pipkins, uh, talking to ITV about it, who uh, were the original producers. This is cutting a long story very short. Um, and then we discovered that nobody really knew where the rights lay and who owned the rights in, anymore because ATV, the original company, had been sold so many times over the years uh, that, um, that nobody was certain about the rights. We decided to knock that on the head and then um, uh, come up with a new idea inspired by the uh, original. So uh, three of us who had been working in the original show got together with Paul Germain and Robert Taylor, who were, uh, Paul is a puppet maker, Robert is a rights lawyer, as well as being a writer. Um, and we got together, we started to put the idea together, um, created the new characters, created the new scenario. And then that's kind of where Monty was born about what, I think probably about five years ago, uh, when we sat down and did this. So it's taken us that long to get it to the screen. Um, uh, a lot of it was trying to work out how we were going to do it and, and raise the finance and so forth. So um, when it came to it, once we, once we had the green light, uh, it was all shot within maybe within four or five months. So um, it was kind of suddenly everything was happening. Very exciting. Yeah. Also, I would say the basis of Monty and Co and still is, is friendship because we all stayed friends. I mean, Susan Pleat, Nigel and I stayed friends since Pipkins mm -hmm. and Robert Taylor, as Nigel just said, uh, I knew 
originally from Chucklevision, we did a couple of series together. Uh, Robert is the only lawyer barrister who wrote Chucklevision. So uh, we were friends with him and Paul Jomain is the best puppet creator you can find. And we were friends and we just, we wanted to work together because you, you do reach a stage where you can go, I want to do what I want to do. Uh, and I want to make the shows. We wanted to make the show that we wanted to make. Yeah, uh, that's, and, that's exactly it, yeah. I think, and, it, yeah, and we did do that. We, we went, we yeah. made it ourselves and then we sold it to the BBC afterwards. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was very much our own piece, you know, is what you see now is very much what we wanted it to look like. Yeah, and we're proud of it. And it's not that we copied Pipkin so much as, I mean, we were the DNA of Pipkins, you know, mm -hmm. Nigel and Sue yeah. and all of us. So obviously you take your DNA with you wherever you go. Uh, and it, it evolved into Monty and, uh, you know, I love Pipkins uh, and funnily enough, Pipkins was done by ATV and I did a lot of series at ATV. It was Lord Grade and all the rest. One of the most richest, powerful studios there were. But our little, dare I say, cottage industry is a lot richer when you look, you know, sort of, uh, I was, were you going to, I was hoping you were going to get Charlie there. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, sorry. <laughs> Just Charlie is crying outside the door. So I had to let him in. Oh, <laughs> it's my dog. <laughs> Charlie is Nigel's Welsh Terrier, and he's also a puppet on Monty. There you I go. Know. Hello, Charlie. Oh my! Oh my gosh! He's like literally the spitting image. It looks like the one, the puppet in Monty and Co. It's yes. incredible. <laughs> oh, yes. he is lovely. Hi. <laughs> my dog's in the other room sleeping. <laughs> uh, the two Charlies are so much alike. Paul Germain said he. He went into into the sitting room and saw Charlie on the settee and was cross and said, get off the settee. And he realized it was the puppet. <laughs> it's um, uncanny. But, yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> but that's why we could do things like that. You know, we could make, you know, you know, Paul made a Charlie puppet because it's nice to have a Charlie puppet. Um, and uh, between the five of us, it's... Uh, it's been a very rich experience because we all bring our our own talents and you know dare one say background and prejudices and other things and just uh, but um, you know we I mean we largely agree the five of us don't we Nige? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know. And also we have a lot of laughs and eat a lot of cake while doing it. Yes. And that, <laughs> We've had a lot of lunches and uh, a lot of uh, cake over the last five years uh, while we were putting this all together. But that was the, that was the fun part of it. Yeah, I, I'm a baker and a feeder. Uh, so we, we, you know, there's no meeting that isn't improved by cake. Well, yeah. Life isn't life without cake. So brilliant. Yeah, we, we, I, I think we were really very lucky that we got everything done before the pandemic hit, you know, I mean, literally. Yeah. We delivered the show to the BBC at the end of February, um, so uh, wow. every, everything was done by then. There were a mm. few tweaks which we had to do afterwards, but they were mainly vocal ones, and I could do those from here um, and send it down the line. So that was, but there, there was hardly anything to do. So we were very lucky that uh, Monty was done in just in time before everything hit and everything closed down. Yeah, well, it's great because. We're still traveling very light and we're putting up videos on, you know, little Monty and Co videos on our Facebook page and our YouTube page and all the rest. And it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's the equivalent of let's put on a show in a barn where I can write a little promo clip or a little sketch and Paul and Nigel film it the next day. And it's on YouTube and Facebook and all the rest immediately. Yeah. And it's a great immediacy to it where you cut out the middleman. It's almost back to the, you know, the silent film days of Charlie Chaplin, not com comparing it quite to that, but they just used yeah. to take a camera and go out in a park and film what they wanted, yeah. you know, film a short. Um, yeah, and so we are able to do that now. And that's, that's we're very lucky to, that we've got that situation and being able to use the social media, of course, 
which yeah. we didn't have in the in the 70s no no real audience reaction at all so it's very interesting now to talk to the 40 50 year olds who all have memories of the show and quite strong memories of it and and, and realize that you were part of their childhood you know which which again we are becoming uh, with Monty and Co obviously there will be a whole generation of kids that will grow up knowing Monty and Co in the same way and yeah. that's that's the interesting thing about having social media now is is hearing people's reactions and responses to what you were doing you know 40 years ago uh, and uh, had no kind of we hardly had any feedback at all I think once or twice we got a letter brought into the rehearsal room but um, mm. uh, that was about it really and so now there's plenty we hear what people say and people thankfully it's all positive <laughs> yes actually it has been which is incredible yeah. mm. uh, but I mean if I can tell a story about when Hartley did the awards yeah uh, mm -hmm because uh, I was chair of the Writers Guild of Great Britain and uh, we have our annual awards and we got uh, Hartley to present an award. Uh, Nigel came too, obviously. Uh, I and, to drag along, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we're talking about an audience full of distinguished writers and people from the industry and all the rest. And we had a lot of big names as presenters. When Hartley came on they went wild because they didn't know he was coming and all these people they were more excited to see Hartley than Tom Stoppard uh, <laughs> and it, which you can always tell with an audience because not only were they enjoying it they were all leaning forward in their seats like like five-year-olds watching the telly uh, and by the way Nigel is a very good ad-libber I mean Hartley was never funnier than that night I remember he was <laughs> I remember Hartley insulted a lot of the audience. Uh, <laughs> Did he? <laughs> that's, that's the one thing you can do with a puppet. You can speak quite freely in that way um, and not feel you're offending anybody. <clears throat> no, exactly. You can just, well, just take, take it out on the puppet, not the person behind the yeah, puppet. <laughs> absolutely. We all need puppets during our meetings in future. The five of us sit round with puppets. That's the that's the next incarnation but yeah. uh well, it's the, the wonderful thing about children's series um is that you have to be careful because you're leaving a lasting impression and yeah. especially with very little ones it's what we're proud of as well is i mean as that it's it's an all british made series because there are wonderful animations and wonderful american shows and wonderful japanese animation mm -hmm. but a child has to see its its own culture reflected back to it as well it's like harry potter that it's something they can identify with and go oh well i see trains like that or i see uh and um it's it's great it's uh children learn and it's nice to go that's, I think, the great thing about puppets as well, because, as you were saying, they're three-dimensional. They're, they're more like real people. I'm sure people think that, you know, the little ones think that Monty is alive. And, you know, you know if you have... Nigel went to a school with Monty uh, before lockdown, and the children spoke directly to Monty, who was on his arm, but ignored Nigel. Yeah. That's so, so I mean, cool. They are that... We all do that sometimes, but <laughs> <laughs> to this day, when I see Hartley, I talk to Hartley, you know, because he's very real to me. Yeah. And I think that, like you say, because they're, you know, these three dimensional characters, children don't see what's behind. They're taken into this whole new world and they're, you know, they see that puppet, that character as a real living thing. And, you know, they, there's that connection there. And I think that's why they enjoy it so much as well. Yeah, it, um, this, it, but it's also something that adults can do as well. And I've discovered this with, since doing Avenue Q, uh, mm -hmm. is that, it, that because Avenue Q is performed in the same way it, that yeah. as Gail just described. In other words, the actors have the puppet on yeah. their hand next mm -hmm. to them. So you can see the actor and you can see the puppet. But the audience pretty soon after about 10 minutes, forgets the actors there and there's you're watching the puppets most of the time your eyes probably going between the two but essentially you focus on the puppets yeah. so I do think um, that there is a kind of ability to suspend belief I think that's the right way around um, in in reality um, and go for it you know because mm. 
it is an extraordinary thing. It harps back to your childhood. And I don't think you ever really lose that thing of, of wanting um, a little bit of fantasy in your life, you know, of something that isn't real. It's why we go to the movies and see all these, you know, James Bond and all that stuff. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a requirement. Fortunately, I have fantasy in all my life because it's, it's happening all the time. One day I'll get a proper job, but uh, maybe not. Um, <laughs> We're totally unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> we won't be retraining, I don't think. No, I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. Oh, uh, no, well, it's great. Yeah. Go on, Gail. Sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, I was going to say that... Uh, it's, it's a compliment to puppeteers, our puppeteers and Nigel, how animated the puppets are because you do believe they're real people. Hmm. I mean, we also had that with Monty and Co because our, our, our human, as we describe him, Sam, <coughs> had a lot of scenes with Lulu. <clears throat> and I noticed between takes, he was tickling Lulu. And I said to Andrew, you do realize that's a puppet, don't you? <laughs> and, you know, he did a double take. And because, you know, you just get so used to talking to the puppet or playing with the puppet. And then he, you know, uh, so, but that is down to great puppetry as well. It's, yeah. Uh, we had a great crew and a great, great team all together oh. on, on Monty and Co. They, they were. <clears throat> they were really right behind us. They were extremely good. We were, we were very lucky with the with the crew and the cast mm. on the Monty and Co. Yeah, um, and we had we have one of the best lighting cameramen in the business, Martin Hawking. Yeah. Martin, yeah. And, you know, people would kill to get him. And we, we got a lot of the people who we worked with at the BBC and other places because they wanted to come and play with us as well. And yeah, I think, yeah, it goes back to what Gail was saying earlier. We've, we're now at the stage in our lives where we really want to work with people who we like to work with and who are pleasant and happy. You know, it's we want a, a, a nice team as well as good people. Yeah. And that's exactly what we got with uh, Monty and Co. It was a dream everyone, team. Yeah, it was a small team. We all did everything. Mm. You know, sort of Robert and I were often doing the washing up uh, and taking tea to the crew. And uh, I would bring cake in and things <laughs> like that. But it was a very it was the happiest atmosphere. Uh, and you can tell with shows that when there's happiness and love that goes into it, you do see it on screen. Mm, very much because so. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you can. Yeah, it's a, that lovely sort of vibe to it, um, which, again, is great for little preschool kids, because yeah. in their world, it's all like, you know, la di da, happy flowers and lots of fun things and it really does radiate through the screen um, especially with the songs and things I like the the little um the three little flowers singing about um I love that I love the little voices when they sing um, yes. and I was going to ask you actually about the theme tune because as I said it's an earworm because it's always but son is always you know listening yeah. to the song where did the where, where did that come from how did you um who wrote that theme tune because it's a well, great it was, little song John Fenton Stevens is uh, written all the music for the series brilliantly yes. and played it all most of it too so he was um, he created the whole thing we were looking for a theme tune and John was we gave John the commission to write 14 songs mm. and we hadn't really given much thought to the theme I have to say but then suddenly this one song came through it was written for for one of the episodes and it is actually in one of the episodes um, and it just sounded like it was the theme tune to us. It mm. couldn't be anything else. And um, uh, it really was strong, a strong piece. So we, there was no question in our mind once we heard it, that was it. You know? And in fact, I think it was Susan Pleat that phoned me up and said, listen to this song, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I mean. And, and I did, and I said, this is the theme. Yeah, it was. Yeah, John, John Fenton Stevens is an incredible composer. Uh, yeah. and and also he has two little boys himself. So that was that was useful. Uh, but, and Susan Pleat, uh, our other writer was, uh, she wrote a lot of the lyrics because Susan does a lot of children's musicals uh, for schools and stage and things like that. So uh, again, it was, it was great because not only was it, a is it a happy team but we would work in different dynamics. At times, John and Sue worked very closely together on the music. Uh, and indeed, 
Paul Gilmain sings the the type yes. of theme song. So, Not only does he make the puppets, he sings the theme tunes and he designs the sets as well. So he's a kind of Renaissance man, really. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It sounds like a very all hands on team as well. Yeah. Everyone has their part, but you know, you're yeah. all sort of doing lots of different things as well. Uh, that's incredible. So what's yeah, we... next? What's next for Monty? More Monty, I hope. <laughs> well, yeah, I hope so too. That would be great. It, Have you got any it, other ideas in the pipeline or are you going to solely focus now on Monty? No, we, we are developing other ideas. Too early to talk about them really yet, but uh, we are developing other ideas. And um, But but really our focus now uh, will be, once the series is through, uh, finished, uh, is discussions about possibly making some more, hopefully, if it's, yeah. if it's, if it's done well. So... Keep watching the iPlayer, everybody, yeah. <laughs> because uh, we, it, we we clock up the numbers on the iPlayer. So oh, do yeah. you? Brilliant! Yeah. Oh, that be my son then, constant on loop, <laughs> loop all the time. That's why it's always in my head. Perfect. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Tell CBBS that you like the series because that's yeah. that's important too. That sort of feedback online. Yes. Uh, but we yeah. we would love to do more Monty and Co. Uh, yeah. Because we're all itching with ideas of what yeah. of where we what we want to do next. Uh, because it's uh, it it becomes exponential. You do one thing, and then you get even more enthusiastic. What if Lulu did this, and what if Monty did that? And yeah. you know, you yeah, you know did. more. Yeah, we learn from what we've okay. been doing and watching what we did, and mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's really uh, a very learning experience. And um, we we did use quite a little bit, quite a few special effects on it, which uh, we have a, we have a great guy, Paul Johnson, who video edited and did all the visual effects. Mm. Um, if you look at the opening title sequence, the work he did on that in in the in CG um, was just extraordinary because it's actually a real street that, it, that exists in the Milestones Museum in Basingstoke, yeah. and he changed the front of the shop. He put a new shop inside it, which is all three-dimensional. So as the as the shot changes, so does the interior of the shop. Uh, he put hills in the background. He put a steam train going through it, which was a model. And uh, he put um, the, the sky because the, it's actually in an old or in a big aircraft hangar. So I love uh, a little rainbow at the beginning as well. Yeah. It goes over the yeah. yeah. It's lovely. Yeah, so he, he did a lot of work on that. And um, really, uh, we were we were able to use that. The singing petals, for example, they were done as a kind of special effect. So we wouldn't have had none of these abilities would we have had, you know, 40 years ago. So the no. things that we can do today, um, really quite simply and easily, um, really make uh, make an effect. I'm glad you like the singing petals because they're one of my favourite bits too. Yeah, so yeah I, like, I love that. Yeah, I like using them as a Greek chorus. It's a Greek chorus with attitude. Yeah. They really are three feisty ladies. You know, yeah. Ladies. yeah. Yeah. And some great puppeteering there. And also Julie Atherton, who did the voice, oh, was yes. the original Kate Monster in uh, Avenue Q when I was working uh, in the West End in 2006. Yeah. So um, uh, it's great to be able to have that kind of relationship with people where you can work together again with them, you know. And yeah. I knew she'd be perfect for it. She's a great, she's got a great voice too. Yeah, Incredible. Can we add, Clock is played by Sally Lindsay. I know, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful Sally Lindsay, who's a yeah. she's She was incredible lovely actress. to be doing that. Yeah, great. great yeah, another great Clark. character, Clock. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. but, uh, you know, when, when we were originally writing it, we would have never dreamt we would have got Sally, that Sally would come in and do it. So uh, it's it's really been wonderful. It's um, you know don't want to call it a love-in, but it's a happy, <laughs> safe place to work, and uh, it's a very nice way to work. Mm. Yeah. You know it it, it beats it, it beats fighting. You know sort of uh, well it, it beats fighting with a lot of executives and studios and all the rest. You know you just make what you really want to make, and you know children will love. Yeah, exactly. Sounds like you've got a lot, lot more control with Monty and Co. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a lovely series. I've been enjoying it as well. I, I just watch tons of children's television anyway. But um, no, I have really been enjoying it. I've, I run a children's book club as well. 
and I've been sharing some clips on there of Monty and Co because a lot of them are uh, well your audience I guess they're preschool children and on primary age key stage yeah. key stage one children yeah. um, that have been enjoying it too so it's lovely to be able to share this with a new generation of children as well and like you say social media is such a great platform to be able to you know share it and uh, get some yeah. feedback yeah definitely um, no it's fantastic yeah. Yeah, we're hoping there'll be Monty books eventually too. So, yeah, that would be great. Sounds like oh, there's lots more to come from Monty. Yes, hopefully, is. yes. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the Beat Society. It's been really, really fun chatting with you both. Um, I've been so excited the whole time. I've literally been from ear to ear because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just been pleasure. great fun. Anytime. Pardon? It's been a pleasure. Anytime we're happy to. Ah, thank you, because I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, good luck with everything that you do. I'll keep watching Monty and Co. And hopefully, you know, there'll be more to come. We want a second series. We want to see some more Monty and maybe some new characters. You reckon there might be new characters? Uh, we've already got some. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Waiting in the wings. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that would be amazing. I'm looking forward to, to all of this and what's to come. So thank you so much for coming on the Beat Society. Pleasure. Thank you. Ah, uh, thank you so much. Thank you to today's guests. That was the marvellous Gail Renard and Nigel Plaskett. You can watch the brand new series of Monty & Co every weekend on CBeebies and catch up on the BBC iPlayer. You can also purchase Gail's book, John Lennon, Give Me a Chance, which is out now. You've been listening to The Beat Society, written, produced and edited by Kim Lewis.